Hello, everyone. It's been um, a few weeks since the last episode was put out, but every time I get a break off from school, I try to um, just share what the Lord has been showing me in the Word as I study these topics. And right now, we are in the law um, segment for Shay and Scripture. This is episode five, titled Judges, and then asking the question, uh, only God can judge me. So just to recap, in the last few episodes, in the first four, we've been talking about the law of God and, and what scripture teaches us about the law and why it's so important that we have a right view and a right understanding of God's law. So the first thing that we talked about in the first episode is that God's law is designed not to tell us what to do necessarily and how we should act. Rather, it shows us the kind of people God expects us to be holy and blameless. And God's law is the ruling by which his people will actually image him. So God's law expresses itself as action flowing from affection. So God doesn't just expect us to um, just do these things because it's the standard, but really out of an affection and love for him, we live lives of obedience that will reflect um, honoring God's law. Uh, we also talked about how we will see that God wants all of our actions, thoughts, and affections to stem from and reflect an unrelenting supreme devotion to and love for him and a love for humanity. And we talked about that in the Ten Commandments, that when we look at those Ten Commandments, that it should show a love and devotion to God, but also it should show um, our love for the people around us. And so God wants us to be a people who exemplify our love and devotion to him by our love, respect for, and honor towards all people from all nations. And that is what um, they are being instructed to do in Deuteronomy. They're being instructed to love the Lord with everything, their actions, desires, thoughts, and beliefs. And, and we talked about how that is going to happen in the person when they see and live God's word as if it is the first, second, and last word, and as if it is essential to every part of their lives, then their lives will reflect um, what we see expected of us in the Ten Commandments. So after all of that from the Lord, why in the world would there be a book called Judges? Why would the Lord have to call Judges amongst the people of Israel? And I'm sure you have said or you have heard someone else say before, like, nobody can judge me but the Lord. Like, only the Lord can judge me. Or this person or that person. Man, have you ever been around them? They are so judgy. And the truth is, all of us naturally discern the things around us and we make evaluations of those things based on a certain standard. That is what a judge does. So, for instance, um, I love music and I love art and I love sports. So when I go to those things, I have a certain standard in my mind of what the music should sound like and the way that the vocalist should use their voice. Or when I'm looking at a painting, I have a way that I think that the artist um, should have brought out the colors and the beauty that we see around us in nature. And as a coach or when I'm watching a, a sporting event, there's a way in which that I have a standard that the game should be played. And therefore, I make judgments and evaluations based off of that standard in my, my mind. We all discern the things around us. But there are formal settings as well where judgments take place. So think about being in a courtroom in America. In our country, we have certain laws that have been set in place and a certain moral standard has been expressed based on those laws. So when a person is accused of breaking a law, a judge looks at the standard and sees if the person measures up, makes an evaluation, and declares them innocent or guilty. So in this episode, we will talk about the judges over Israel, their purpose, the corporate judge God has placed in our lives in the modern church, and their purpose, the role of informal brotherly judgment that Christians have been called to as we walk out our salvation together, and the severity of the final judgment. We're going to look at those and it, it may it may take a while. So bear with me. I'm going to try to go through some things quickly. Some things I'll take a little more more time on and I'm going to mention the Bible references so you can go back and read on your own. But the goal is for us to see ultimately that God placing people or persons in our lives that render gracious judgments to us 
are a sign of his patience and love towards us, not a sign of shame or condemnation. And so we're going to look into that. So when you pick up reading in chapter two of the book of Judges, it is important that we understand where the people of Israel have been so far. So think about it. Genesis chapter one, God created Adam and Adam and Eve and places them in paradise, which we call the garden of Eden, according to scripture. And they are given an instruction or like we said in the first episode, an instruction is a law. It's a decree from God. They are given an instruction from God that says you can eat of any tree, but of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat for if you do, you will die. You know the story. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Their eyes are open. They receive the knowledge of good and evil. And they're like, whoa, you aren't wearing any clothes. So they sew fig leaves together and God curses them and sends them out of the garden. Fast forward to Exodus. The Israelites are enslaved. God sends Moses to rescue them. Plagues are sent to show Pharaoh's to show Pharaoh God's power and might over his perceived power. And finally, Pharaoh lets them go despite his heart remaining hard. God plunders the Egyptians into the sea and the Israelites are set off into the wilderness. And you would think that once they got there, they would recognize how great and awesome God is and how much he deserves their love and their worship and their praise and a lifelong time of obedience. But that is not what they do. They go off in the wilderness grumbling and complaining and even asking to go back to Egypt, saying that that was far better there being enslaved, but eating meat out of pots as if they did not trust God's provision for them. And after Moses died, God raised up Joshua and the Israelites were well on their way to the to the promised land. So in 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 the books before this in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, there is thing upon thing and moment upon moment and and a revelation upon revelation of the beauty of God. And there are so many reasons for the Israelites to respond in loving, faithful obedience. Yet in Judges chapter two. Verses 11 through 15, we see the opposite of obedience. And I'm going to, I'm going to just read it to you so you can get a taste of this, right? If you've, if you've read through your Bible before, then you know a lot of things that I just kind of skimmed over in the first few books of the Bible before we get to Judges. And you, you can just kind of sense this. Here's what Judges chapter two, verses 11 through 15 says. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. So you see the Israelites are giving in to wickedness. They are not loving the Lord, their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might and with all their strength. They're not teaching their children on their way. They're not writing it on their doorposts and writing it on their foreheads and, and on their wrists and on their arms and talking about the word in every aspect of their lives. They're not honoring him in the way that they interact with each other. Everything that we've talked about so far, the Israelites are not doing these things. They abandoned the God of their forefathers. It says that they went after other gods. They served other Baals and they, um, took place in the Asherah. And it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. So God in this moment has every right to do what he did in the days of Noah when wickedness is running rampant and evil is running rampant and when people um, are not responding to him in the way that he has called them to and, and living in the way that he has created for mankind to live. God has every right to wipe them from the face of the earth. Yet God in this moment when he could have and when he has the right to do so he fulfills what he has said, what he said to Noah and that he would never again flood the earth. He would never again wipe off all the face of humanity, although he knew they were going to continue in their sin. And we see the Israelites walking in what God said. We see them doing what he said and we see God doing what he said he would do. They are continuing their sin, yet God does not respond to them um, with with we're just destroying them and taking them off the face of the earth. We're going to see in verse 16 that God responds to them in a different manner. Look at verse 16. 
It says, then the Lord. So after, after God seen their wickedness, turning to Baal and doing all of this, it says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So despite their wickedness and evil in the sight of God, God responds to them with grace and mercy. And I remember when I first caught this, right? Like, so if you've read through the Bible beginning to end throughout the year, this verse is easy to miss. But I remember when I first caught this, this verse shows us that in God's eyes, having someone in your corner who reminds you of the standard to which you have been called is an expression of grace, not a tool of shame or ridicule. Somehow, we have decided in our minds that true Christian love is to let people go on in their sin with no warning, no reminding, no call signal. And according to this text and many others, that's just not true. Now, there is self-righteous judgment. Sure. And we know that there are times where people are calling out sin in others lives because it make them feel it makes them feel better about the sin that they may be hiding or the sins that they don't want other people to be aware of. Or they want this perceived holiness or godliness that really isn't because of them um, and and their life of purity. Uh, They want to point out the things in other people. So you're not paying attention to where they also fall short. Sure. There there is self-righteous judgment. But there is a type of judging that stems from truth and love. And we're going to look at both. But we want to aim our lives to reflect the latter. The latter. We don't want to be people who are self-righteous judgers. We want to be people who call out and remind and rebuke and call people to something greater from the truth of God's word and from the love that we have for God and for those people. So again, we're going to look at four areas. We're going to look at the purpose of Israel's judges. We're going to look at the corporate judge that God has has placed in our local bodies. We're going to talk about brotherly judgment, the judgment that happens between brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're going to talk about the final judgment from the perfect judge. We're going to look at all of these, these aspects. And hopefully, again, I hope you walk away with seeing that there is a type of judging that we have been called to as Christians that stems from truth and love. And it is an expression of God's grace, not a tool of shame or ridicule. So what were the purpose of Israel's judges? I think we can see three things. Number one, we can see their, their role was to remind. Their role was to remind. If you read through the book of Judges, you're going to see this statement over and over again. And it says, and the Lord said to the people, remember, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, right? The Lord is reminding the people of their salvation, of their, their physical salvation. But this we will see will mirror the reminding of our spiritual salvation that we have as Christians in the New Testament church. So the, the judges of Israel were responsible for reminding these people, hey, remember when you were a slave? Remember when you were subject to the gods of Pharaoh? Remember when you were subject to the harsh ridicule and ruling of Pharaoh? Remember when you were there? Remember when you uh, you would cling and cry out to God and remember when God answered you remember when Moses was sent to you remember how the Lord sent plagues upon the people of Egypt remember how he told you and not the Egyptians about the plague of of slaughtering the the lamb and putting the blood on your doorpost remember how he was gracious to give you that information yet he didn't give it to anyone else and he saved you although you didn't deserve it although you deserved that slavery because of your rebellion and because of your hard hearts remember when pharaoh would harden his heart after he had let you go and he would chase you chase after you and the lord parted the red sea remember that the judges were sent to these people and called amongst these people to remind them of the work that God had done in their lives and the faithfulness of the Lord and the hope that they should have because of that. But they were also sent to rebuke. They were not only sent to remind and just say, remember what all God has done. They were also sent to them to say, hey, what you're doing is evil in the sight of the Lord. And unlike your fathers, you are not obeying the commandments of God's word. We see that in this text, there, there, there's a rebuke that, th- that they're going to speak out 
to the Israelites. They did not just let them walk off the cliff. They are not just letting them continue to worship other gods and to serve Baals and the Asherah. They're not um, watching them and just saying, okay, well, um, I told them that they were saved. I told them that, you know, that God, their, their hope is, is in Jesus. They're, they're not just doing that, but there's a rebuke. There's a, there's a, Hey, what you're doing is not godly. What you're doing is not good for you. What you are doing is not fruitful. It's not effective. But they don't just leave them there. They also call them to revitalize. Um, they, they call them to, to turn away from their practices and their stubborn ways. Now, when you read Judges, you're going to see where it says that they did not drop their practices or their, their stubborn ways, right? When we read um, all the way from 17 throughout, it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have trans transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So again, there's a hope in this rebuke. In this rebuke, there's a hope. He, he's saying, I, I'm, I'm not going to take these nations away that are afflicting you and oppressing you. He's saying, I'm doing this to test you so that you will turn from your wicked ways. I'm keeping this thorn in your side so that you will turn from this life that you are living. You will return to me. All right. So that's that's our foundation, right? We see this in the very beginning of the Bible that God is sending people. He's he's sending men and he sent women. He sent these these leaders into the people of Israel so that they could remind, so that they could rebuke with the hope of these people turning from their sins and back to God so that they would revitalize. So we're going to look at the other aspects of this, right? It's specifically in the church. There are, are specific relationships that we should see. There's going to be a pastor or elders, some type of um, teaching leadership that you see in the church. And we're going to consider this, and I, I mean this term very loosely, but we're going to say that this person is the corporate judge of the church. And I'm going to explain with scripture what I mean by that, what I mean by that imagery. I'm not saying that the Lord is calling pastors to be judges in the, uh, in the, in the same way that we see this with the people of Israel. But I do think that there are a lot of characteristics of what pastors have been called to do in God's word in the New Testament that resembles what we just saw in Judges chapter two of what God has called the judges to do in Israel. I think there are some similarities. So we're going to say this very loosely that pastors and elders are the corporate judges of the church. And we're going to look at three different passages um, where we're going to see these same things in the text that we just saw in just chapter two. The first one is first Timothy chapter five, first Timothy chapter five, verses 17 through 25. How is it, Shay, that pastors and elders, men of God, that God is called to shepherd his flock? How are they also doubly the corporate judges of the local body? Well, let's let's just read through these texts and talk through them. So first Timothy chapter five, verses 17 through 25, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is kind of stemming from um, Matthew chapter 18, where it talks about church discipline and how when someone is in sin, you should go to your brother and you should... Um, speak to him in love. And then if he doesn't listen, bring someone else, right? That, that's kind of stemming from that, that you don't want to just make false accusations. But um, the, if sin really is as rampant as you say in someone's life, it should be evident not by just you as if you're some type of um, 
person who can see things in people's lives that no one else can, or you have this level of holiness that no one else will ever arrive at, but there should be other Christians as well that can agree with your concerns. Anyways, verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality partiality do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others keep yourself pure no longer drink only water but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent frequent ailments the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are that are not cannot remain hidden as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear, right? There, there is, in a sense, in a sense, again, we're talking about this loosely, but and we're going to see this even more stronger language in the other passages, but here more so loosely, there is a responsibility and an expectation of those who teach and preach the word of God in their churches to not be afraid to rebuke the sins of those in the congregation so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Is it so that they may stand in fear of the pastor that one day he may actually say something about their sin from the pulpit? No, so that they may stand in fear of God, recognizing that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is a God of wrath who judges evil and who's going to bring upon the consequence due to those who have not. repented of their sin it's so that they may stand with righteous fear a right fear of God there is responsibility of a pastor to rebuke again and we're we're going to get into the because this can go a lot of ways I think it can be taken a lot of ways but we're just going to leave it there there is responsibility of the pastor to rebuke I think when we look in second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 through chapter four, verse two, that we can understand this a little bit better. We can understand, Shay, what do you mean? What do you mean that the pastor is the corporate judge in a sense? And I am going to define what I mean by judge. I think by the time you leave, leave this discussion in this podcast, you will know that when I say judge, it, it's probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Okay. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 through chapter four, verse two, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So Building on this topic, Paul is writing to um, his son in the faith, Timothy, building on this topic of rebuking so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Paul is saying you're rebuking with a purpose so that those who is hearing your correction when you use the word of God again, it's not the pastor thinking he's holier than thou and therefore calling out people's sins. He's saying that when when the pastor uses the word of God to teach and for correction, when he's correct and say, ah, that's God has not called us to that. God has not called us to live this way. God has not called us to treat people this way. He's not called us to participate in these activities. It's so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? And think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, that God has set apart beforehand good works that we may walk in them. So there's a setting apart beforehand, but there's also an equipping and a teaching and a rebuking and a reproof and a correction and a training that has to happen so that we actually walk in the good works that God has set apart beforehand. So you can see this language that Paul uses in Ephesians. He also uses it again in explaining to Timothy how the word of God should be used as he is pastoring and teaching people. Chapter four, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, it's kind of like this fatherly, this parental rebuke, right? When you're, when you tell your kid, don't go and touch the outlet and they go and touch it anyway, and you kind of pop their hand. It's like, it's painful, but it was done out of love. It was done in the sense of you knowing what's better for them. And obviously they couldn't see what was better for them themselves, or they would have made a different decision. It's this type of teaching. That's why it says, 
Timothy, you're, you're going to do this. You're going to reprove. You're going to rebuke. You're going to exhort. You're going to preach the word. You're going to remind them of the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but you're going to do it with patience and with teaching because they're not going to get it the first time. And your congregation isn't going to be perfect and holy and blameless overnight. Like Timothy, this, you're going to have to be ready and prepared to do this for the long run. All right. Last, last section. Second Peter chapter one. And the Lord recently has just been bringing this passage over and over again. I don't know why. Maybe it was for this. Maybe it was for this moment. Again, how can we view the pastor or, or elders of our churches as the corporate judges? Look at what um, Peter says in second Peter chapter one, verses three through 15. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's, here's the, the big part right here. Peter is speaking in a pastoral leadership sense to his people. They're, they're in exile, right? Or, or going to be in exile. And they have a lot of things going on, a lot of persecution going on. So he's speaking as a leader to this people. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are establishing the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is Peter saying? He is saying to them, it is my job to remind you, although you have your own Bible, although I know that you're reading your Bible, you're going to Bible study, you're in small groups together and you're praying and you are confessing sin and you, you are being serious about your walk with the Lord. He's saying it is my job to remind you, to stir you up, to remind you of the qualities to which you have been called. And the knowledge of Jesus to which you have claimed to have. He's calling them to something greater. He's reminding them, right? We see the, the rebuke and the teaching and the correction. And we see Peter here saying it is his job to remind the people of what they have been called to. So pastors are more than just corporate judges, but they are no less in this sense. May it be said of every pastor that when all their sheep give way to sin, they fervently chase after them, reminding them of that to which they have been called. If no one else will call out sin, may it be the pastor that does. If no one else will be reminded of the call to be holy because God is holy, because God is holy, may it be the pastor that is reminded of this call. These are men who are not weak spined, just passively letting their flock be given way to sin as long as the programs are going good. No, these are men rooted and firm in the truth that walk with the sword of God and Sunday after Sunday, week after week, pierce their congregation in a way that reminds them that God abhors sinners, but he loves a sinner who repents. These are men who tirelessly spend their time and effort rebuking the subtle sin of the times. They serve as the ever going present in the flesh alarm clock for the Christian who has fallen asleep. They do it out of love with a tenderness that is not salt in a wound, but medicine. And they do it from a place of, they do it not from a place of, of perfection or self-righteousness, but from a place of recognition, recognizing that Jesus is worthy. Do we have, and do you have pastors and elders like this? Or have they too forgotten 
the authority of God's word that has been entrusted to them to call their people, to rebuke their people, to remind their people, to refresh in the eyes of their people to that which they have been called. And that is a life of loving, faithful obedience, a life of holiness and blamelessness. But the pastors are not the only ones. Oh, before you get too excited, the pastors are not the only ones that have a responsibility and walking toe to toe with the brothers and sisters in the church and, and, and spending time to time and, and having conversations and going and doing the hard things so that we may live a life that's honoring to that which God has called us to. They are not the only ones with the responsibility, Christian. You also have a responsibility. And this is where we're going to look at this in two ways, right? Because we hear it all the time. People like to say, oh, such and such always tries to judge me, but no one can judge me but God. And they normally um, quote Matthew chapter seven. And we are going to look at Matthew chapter seven. And we should have some careful considerations before we seek to go and have a conversation of judgment or evaluation of a life or, or, um, a brother and sister who has been given way to sin. Sure. There, there are some considerations, but Matthew chapter seven is not a pass. It is not a pass Christian. So Matthew chapter seven, verses one through six. And then we're also going to look at another passage in first Corinthians, Matthew chapter seven, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck? speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Christian brothers and sisters, it is time that we take our sins seriously. It's time that we go back to the way that the Puritans have lived their lives and the reformers of old and the Christians of the early church. And they took their sin seriously. May we not be abusers of the grace of God, but may we be humbled by his grace. We cry that the sin struggle of our brothers and sisters around us is their business, but really, really and truly, it's because we are too lazy to tend to the business of our own sin, let, let, lest we help anybody else. So Matthew 7 was not a call to watch your friends walk off a cliff without warning. And we're going to get back to that when we go to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. But first, there are some careful considerations because the imperative here in Matthew 7, verse 1 is do not judge. That is what Jesus is saying here. And William Barclay, his commentary on Matthew 7, 1 through 6, he says there are three reasons why no man should ever judge another. He says we never know the whole facts or the whole person. Two, it is almost impossible for a man to be strictly impartial. Three, no man is good enough to judge another man. And he's literally saying morally good enough to judge another man. So what should be our response when we read this? Is it, it, it Shay, if it's not a pass to just let our friends do whatever they want, especially those who profess to be Christians. But if it's also not a pass to just go and judge our friends and make ourselves feel better about the things that we don't do, then what, what is it? I would say that Matthew 7 is informing us that we should have a humble response to the sins of those around us. So may the sins of others lead us to pray. May the shortcomings of others grieve us, not make us draw a line around ourselves and say, I do not do what they do. Therefore, I am holy. May we be careful of judging with finality, making statements like, oh, I know they're not saved or I know they're not a follower or a lover of Jesus. Do you do you remember what they did? Did you see what they just did? Did you see um, what posts they just made? I heard that they were doing this this weekend or I heard they were doing that. There's no way that this this person is going to heaven. They're definitely going to hell because they did this, this, this. We, we need to be very, very careful of the response that we have to the sins of those around us. Because truth be told, we are not God. And according to Romans chapter three, none of us are righteous. No, not one. All of our throats are open graves and all of us have been given way to sin apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit and Christ consuming our lives and, and making us be like him. But at the same time, 
We should care enough about those around us that we do walk with on a daily basis or who do profess Christ in our communities to reach out when they seem to be walking away from the path of following Jesus. And I think Paul um, is not contradicting Matthew chapter seven, but is speaking to this in first Corinthians chapter five, verses one through 13. He says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is that I just have to pause here and mention this is the same type of language used in Judges when it says that the Lord did not remove the nations from them among the people of Israel so that they would turn away from their wicked ways. Continuing verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have i to do with judging outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you so at the same time at the same time that we should not be people who judge with the finality and look at the people of the world and say, oh, this person has exhausted the grace of God. I actually um, have a remem remembrance of something that happened in college where one of my friends were in a classroom and there was some conversation going about saying that serial killers have exhausted the grace of God. May we not? May we not judge in that way? May we not judge as if we know whether or not a person has exhausted the grace and the extension of the patience and steadfastness of God? But we should care enough about those around us that we do walk with on a daily basis to go to them in love and say like, hey, man, I could be wrong here. And I spent some time praying about this before I came to you. But it seems that you are being pulled away from your love for God by this certain thing. You can fill in the blank. You can say, hey, I, I want to help you. Like I've been there before and, and I kind of pulled away from community and I pulled away from accountability when I was doing this secret sin. And, and I mean, it really ruined my life. And, and I know how enticing it is, but it's, it's not worth it. And I want to really help you. That, there is a difference in the two in saying you've exhausted the grace of God. That is a judgment. And hey, I really see how dangerous what you're deviling in, how dangerous that could be. And I want to help. Both of those are judgments, but one is done from a place of trying to shame and ridicule. And one is done from a place of truth and love and churches. And when I say churches, I mean, the Christians filled with them have done a great job at making sure that the world around them knows what they do and do not stand for. And sometimes even at the expense of hatefully bashing those who profess Christ and have fallen into those sin areas. But how many Christians in their private and individual lives speak up to their friends when their friend is staying the night at their boyfriend or girlfriend's house? How many of them speak up then? Or how many of them will stay silent then yet have so much to say when there's a baby born out of wedlock? Like, like. A friend who would lovingly remind those people to that which they have been called before the large consequences there. How many of them are concerned when the sin is subtle? How many Christians before the divorce happens, before they have something to say about how wrong divorce is, 
lovingly calls out to each spouse to say, hey, remember, remember when we studied Ephesians 5 in Sunday school class? Remember what God has called you to as a husband or wife? I just sense that you're you're veering off from that. And I would love to help and pray for you as you and your your spouse try to get back in that place. And, and when I when I thought about this, as I was typing this, I literally typed it is easy to condemn from afar. But it is only like Christ to come close and remind those we love of their call. And I'm reminded of the passage in the Gospels where the men wanted to stone the woman because of her sin. And Jesus went and knelt down next to her and he and he settled the issue and he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here anymore. And he says, neither do I go and sin no more. It is more like Jesus not to just passively allow sins to just run rampant and and go over. But it is like Christ to come close and say, hey, hey, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to accuse you like I have my my own stuff, my own sin to deal with. But I just want to come out of love to say like, man, the Lord has called us to something greater than a life of sin. The Lord has called us to something greater than a life of adultery. The Lord has called us to something greater than a life of greed and malice and bitterness and jealousy and sexually immorality. The Lord has called us to something greater than a life of homosexuality. Like I know, like I know it's enticing. I know it, it feels good. I know it tastes good. I know it looks good to the eye, but it's really not as good as what you think. Can I help you? Can I pray for you? What can I do to help you rid your life of, of these stumbling blocks and these temptations and this? What, what can I do to help? That's brotherly judgment. That's judgment out of love. That's judgment that reflects 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would say that William Barclay is absolutely right. That we, we need to consider the things he mentioned. But there's a fourth thing that we need to be aware of that should make us hesitant to judge anyone. In the finality sense, in the sense of saying like, oh, you've exhausted the grace of God. Like there's nothing else for you from the Lord. And I would say it goes back to what we saw in Genesis where the Lord said, if you eat of this tree, you, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. People who judge based on their own standard of good and evil do not reflect godly biblical judgment. Those who judge based on God's word and the truth of scripture are a gracious reminder of God's care and patience with us. Because of the fall, our discernment is imperfect. And that's evident in our own lives. Like people truly and really think that they sometimes are making the best decisions for themselves. And it's not the best decision. We too, just like Eve, look at the wicked things and say that they look good and will therefore taste good, even though they are wicked and will cause us to surely die. So our discernment is is broken. Like we don't clearly see good and evil. We call evil things good and good things evil. Therefore, we need to be careful when we judge someone else. When we look at someone else's life for also not the three reasons that William Barclay mentioned, but also for the one of, hey, you don't you haven't arrived yet. Like your conscience and your um, ability to discern good and evil has not been made perfect. It's still broken. So you could be wrong. What you're discerning in this person's life, you could be missing the mark. They actually may not be doing something evil. It just may be according to your convictions that you wouldn't participate in that in that thing. Or sometimes we permit Christians to do things and we call them good when it is evil. So we need to be careful of that. Last thing. We're not the next to the last thing. Uh, Now we have arrived at the final judgment from the perfect judge. And we're going to look at this quickly um, just for the sake of time because we're coming up on, I'm assuming, like 45 minutes. So in Matthew chapter 24, um, Jesus gives a warning. He he talks about um, the times at hand. Let me get to my page here. He talks about the, the swiftness with which he will return and judgment will be upon mankind. Listen to this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, 
So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his fast master will find will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then also we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So those who are not in Christ will face the ultimate judgment. And all the warnings of this life will no, no longer be of any help to them. And the pleasures of this life will not have been worth it. But those who are in Christ will stand before the per perfect judge, having recognized their inability to measure up to his perfect standards. Yet they are glad because they are clinging to the only one who can, the judge himself, Jesus Christ. So here's the overview. If I could pick one passage, one passage that... Uh, kind of consumes and speaks to all of this and y'all are like well Shane why didn't you just talk about that one passage because I think it's important that we look at each each aspect each gift of God each grace of God that God has given us to continue to spur us on in our walk but if I could just point you to one place it would be to Hebrews chapter 12 1 through 17 and then I'm going to leave you with three reminders and I'm going to pray Hebrews 12 1 through 17 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly to the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and life and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." So what should be out of all of this? How should we respond? Don't run from the reminders when you're at church on Sunday morning or when you're in a Bible study with a group of people or when your friend comes to you out of love. Don't run from the reminders. When you hear the gospel, don't run from the reminder. Don't dismiss that and say, oh, I know I'm saved. Oh, I, I get the gospel. I understand it. No, you need we need to be reminded. Oh, how quickly we forget. Don't run from the rebuke. That's number two. When the pastor is stepping on your toes, don't don't pull back. Keep your foot there a little longer because maybe just one more inch of pain will make you turn back to the paths of following the Lord and instead of keeping on your path of wickedness. And number three, thank God that he is not giving you over to sin. That the, the judges in the same way that the judges he placed in the lives of the Israelites in chapter two was from his love. The people and discipline that the God that God gives to us is because of his love. So may we respond with gratitude that the Lord does not give us over to our sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have not allowed us to be fully given way to our wickedness and the evil that we are capable of. Oh Lord, may we recognize that if if it was not apart from your grace that all of us would have by now been given way to murder, been given way to robbery, given way to adultery, Lord, all the sins that we may list that we are just so proud that we haven't delved in yet, Lord, that is only by your grace that you have kept us near, that you have kept us from what we are truly capable of. God, I thank you for reminders. I thank you for um, the gospel and how we are reminded in every passage of scripture of the goodness of Jesus, Lord, of how we deserve your wrath, but we've received your grace. God, I thank you for people you have placed in our lives from the pastor to the people around us in our congregations, the people you've granted us to rebuke us, to correct us, to help us train for godliness. Lord, I ask that this podcast would be a blessing to those that listen, that they would leave being serious about their sin, but also taking serious the rebuke and reminders that you've placed all around them and that they would go not happily letting their friends run off the cliff, But knowing that their friends have gone by way of warning, call sign, and reminder to the life of which they have been called. It's in your name I pray. Amen.